Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are going to begin. Uh, we're going to begin with an announcement from Chuck. Uh, we might have to announce it at the end of class two to catch everybody that's not here right now. So, all righty. Um, uh, you want to just yell loud? invite you to uh, volunteer, thank you, <laughs> Phil, to volunteer uh, for coffee and donuts. Uh, the list has a lot of openings, and we all enjoy the coffee and donuts here. It's, it's, it's a great way to volunteer because you end up coming maybe 20 minutes early before, like, the first service, and then stay 20 minutes after Sunday school uh, to take care of it, and we'd really appreciate that help. And so I'll just pass this around to, to all the tables today. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, um, our study today um, is going to be on First Peter, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, the Bible and, uh, and uh, how it is that the Bible, the Scriptures, were viewed by the early Christian church. And then also we want to talk about this, um, as Chemnitz does, this union that we have with Christ and why it's, uh, it's so important. Uh, today, of course, is a very big and wonderful day for the Feeney family because our little Max Jeffrey is going to be baptized in our second service today. And uh, we're just really, really thrilled to be able to bring a child of God into the kingdom of God um, by means of the waters of baptism. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray. O Lord and Savior, may your word be our constant companion because it stands as our greatest defense. Grant unto us as Christians an understanding of your word that we may rightly use it and apply it in our lives. Help us to distinguish clearly between law and gospel that we may rightly use this faith that you have granted unto us in order that we might live sanctified and holy lives. Where we fail and where we give in to our temptations and tribulations, we pray that you would restore us through forgiveness and through your mercy lead us to an understanding of your abiding love and guiding presence that we may enter into your glories with you in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, you all come on in. Grab yourself a cup, cup, cup of coffee there. And um, what was that show? Come on down. Was that the prices right? Okay, yeah. So you have to be old enough, I guess, to have watched TV when you were a kid or something. But come on down. Um, we are we are going to um, pick this up here. Uh, I just want to pick it up at verse ten of the first chapter. And we read uh, these words from 1 Peter. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstance to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of these things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long 
to look into these things. There are some incredibly important things contained within this chapter that are really articles of our faith. Let's, uh, let's back up uh, the, um, the salvation, the salvation of our souls. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, yeah, they searched their own words. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I don't think it's always the greatest idea for me to search my own words. Um, one day, I was uh, I, I decided that I want, kind of wanted to see what my sermons were like, and so I recorded my sermon. And then I was sitting on the couch at home listening to my sermon, and um, Solve came into the room and she said, "Wake up." because I had fallen asleep listening to my own sermon. Um, I didn't find anything more profound in my own words um, that kept me awake. But um, when you have prophets who are going back to their own words that they had written, they realized that there was something in their words that was greater than just what they themselves were coming up with, that they were actually being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, inspiration is something that is professed by a a good number of Christian denominations. Um, You'll you'll hear this. I mean, we even sing it with the children, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me, I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And I would say uh, that we tend towards, uh, I guess you might say, that we have been lumped into the category of the fundamentalists. Now, this term, fundamentalism, you know, is a fairly recent term. It was actually a term that was given to people who were believing in the inspiration of the Bible, but it was a, it was a, a rough kind of late American term that comes actually out of a Protestantism that says something like this, that it's kind of like you have this core belief in Jesus Christ, and there's this salvation, I guess you might say, by grace through faith, kind of a a Reformation kind of, of thing, but that The other so-called teachings that you might regard as, say, for instance, the Lord's Supper or baptism. You might even say the office of the ministry and so on and so forth. That those things are extraneous. That those are things that are just kind of like arbitrary, you know. It's like, uh, what do you wear to church? You know, uh, Carol wears white, uh, Mona wears black. But for some reason, they both got into church today. You know, we, we didn't mind. They, they, it's, it's something that's kind of up to their taste, or it's how they see it. And these fundamentalists would say, uh, we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, and we believe the Bible is the Word of God, but when it comes to such things as baptism and Lord's Supper, those are things that, well, that, that's secondary. And so these were... The fundamentals, where the word fundamentalism came from, and these were the non 
fundamentals. Now, it wasn't that these words were uncommon to Lutherans. In other words, Lutherans would say that there are certain things such as vestments, those kinds of things. Um, whether or not you would uh, say, for instance, that you would um, baptize uh, the, the mode of baptism. Do you sprinkle? Do you immerse? And so on and so forth. These are the things that aren't prescribed by Scripture. They're neither commanded nor are they forbidden. Therefore, they are non-fundamental to our faith. So, if you, don't, if you confuse these, now all of a sudden you're at this core and you're saying, hey, we just believe in Jesus. That's all we need. That's, uh, that enables us to be able to share fellowship with one another. And so when we get together with these conservative Baptists and we get together with these conservative Presbyterians, we get together with these conservatives, whatever, uh, we all are sharing the same faith. And fundamentalism, by and large, uh, became very anti-sacramental. And a lot of Lutherans have fallen to this. You go to those big box churches and you find Lutherans in great number that are there because, and we can be sympathetic to this, that they'll hear this, right? But they don't hear this. And is that really something that is non-fundamental? Or is this actually something which is a part of the gospel itself? And unfortunately, I think that there's a, there's a problem that happens here. There are a couple of things. One is, number one, what does the Word of God say? What does it say? Um, I remember this, this one guy who um, was in my adult information class uh, back in Utah. His name was Randy. And Randy came into this, this class, and I said, well, what's your background? And he said, well, I've been a Methodist pretty much all my life and such. So when we went through the adult information class, uh, and we got to the Lord's Supper, and I said, now let's break these words down. Tuto esti, soma emu. This is my body. This cup is a New Testament in my blood. And if you look at these words, you got to understand the real presence. You know, driving it home and driving it home and driving it home. And all of a sudden, he says, okay. I said, what do you mean okay? He said, well, I've always believed that. I said, you're a Methodist. No, you haven't. He said, yes, I have. He said, I said, well, how could you believe this? He said, well, isn't that what the words say? That's what the words say. This is my body. How can you argue with that? Now, when he says that, that's great because if you don't believe what the word says, if you say, oh, how could it be his body? I mean, come on. All of a sudden, Something has entered in, a virus. And the virus is the virus of rationalism. Now, this doesn't conform to my reason. I can't see it. I can't taste it. I can't touch it. What does the word say? If the same logic applies to this as it does to this, 
all of a sudden now, reason has now, and is now going to come after the gospel itself. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Paul will say, is God truly reconciled to the world? Has God put away all sin in Christ? All these things are not things that you can tangibly see. So what happens is that when that little piece of that little, I will call it the virus of reason enters, what happens to the gospel of grace is that it ends up being turned into law. And now the law is this. Have you accepted Jesus as your Savior, right? And now it's you must do this to receive grace. And now the gospel gets turned into law. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, it really gets turned into cheap grace because here are all these Roman Catholics having to work, 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 work all their life in order to be able to maybe get into heaven. And along come the Protestants and say, boy, are we glad we're Protestants. All we have to do is accept Jesus as our Savior. And you go, ooh, we accept. And that little tiny we accept becomes a piece of law that supposedly gets you God's grace, but it ends up being something that really is rooted in reason and not in the Word. So we do with them, and we shouldn't be confused by this, we do with them accept the inspiration of the Scriptures, but the inspiration of the Scriptures as a belief by itself is not enough. We must embrace the Gospel that stands at the heart of the Scripture because only when you know the Gospel clearly, not only does you, do you find yourself being able to understand now the Lord's Supper and baptism and why this is important, the office of the ministry, the absolution that's been given to you, but it is also what preserves the distinction between law and Gospel. And that is to say, the law is here, just like catechism stuff, right? The law is here like a mirror to show us our sins. The law shows us the wrath of God. The law teaches us what we are to do and not to do. But the gospel, it shows us the grace of God. It shows us what Christ has done for us and for our salvation. It shows us what he has done for us, not what we must do for him. And if you get those confused, you will lose the gospel. That's called the commingling or the confusion of law and gospel. All right, well, there, there's so much comfort here and in here in this grace because this is all a part of the wonderful gospel of Christ. I said today in my sermon, <clears throat> what did I say in the sermon today? I forget. <laughs> well, I've got to go back and look at my notes. No, I mean, what is, what is the power that we have over the devil? The power of the devil is that when the devil comes to us and says, you are insufficient in God's sight. You are a person who has sinned against God in thought and word and deed. And why would God ever, ever, ever protect you, defend you, watch over you, guard you upon that last day when you stand before heaven and you have to give an accounting of your life? And to be able to say, 
I am a baptized child of God, and God's word made a promise to me in my baptism that I have now a righteousness which is not my own, but which comes to us through Christ. When, you, when God sees me on that last day, he sees his son Christ. Why? Because I, when I was baptized, Paul says, I put on Christ. It's like clothing. Get those kids out of here. <laughs> it's just, it's a, the voice, it, it, that's a chorus of angels. Um, any church right now, you go to some of these churches that don't have any children at all, and let me tell you, when those people hear a baby crying, it's like the voice from heaven, because to have children in a congregation means life. So anyway, it's good. All right, so, we have, to, we have to remember this, that when he speaks here about inspiration, he is affirming something that we do share with others, but not necessarily in the same way. It was revealed to them, this is in verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. Okay. Who inspires the Bible, according to this text? Who inspires the Bible? Holy Spirit inspires, inspires the Bible. So when you are reading the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. I said this in our, in our Bible class on Wednesday morning. Advertisement, advertisement, advertisement. Bible class on Wednesday morning, 9.30. Come as you are. Uh, Shelly Kazmierczak uh, actually makes food and you can be well cared for. Now, er, now, now, unfortunately, she's really bound and obligated and we didn't want that. But uh, if by the Holy Spirit, we talked about uh, in 2 Timothy where uh, Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God. Uh, I take my father-in-law's uh, exegesis. All scripture is the expired word of God. Hmm, what does that mean? To inspire is this. To expire is this. That when you are reading the scriptures, God is talking to you and it is the breath of God that is coming out of those scriptures. That you are literally hearing God, the Holy Spirit, talk to you as you're reading the scriptures. Now they said something here. They re, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but us, but those who are yet to come. Probably a reference to maybe to the inclusion of the Gentiles. But when you think about this, I, there's another dimension to this that I think that we should talk about. You know, when those people that are our forebears came across the ocean, most of us, they came across the ocean. We wouldn't stop to think that their sacrifices have now made our, our prosperity possible. That what you are doing today with your children or maybe with your grandchildren is that you are serving people who will probably be living 100, 200 years from now. That, that, in, in that in that devotion that you have in seeing to it that your children are remaining in the faith. 
that you're not just serving you because, you know, you want those kids to be here, that you're not just serving them because you want them to remain in faith, that you're actually serving future generations 100, 200 years from now. If you ever stop to, to figure, this, figure out the math on this, that, that if, if my grandmother was born in 1894 and she sat on the cusp of knowing her grandparents who were born in 1819. So what that would have meant is that from 1819 to the year 2014, 2019, which would be in one year, we're talking about a span of 200 years. This, this, this is a short thing. It's actually just, a, it's just kind of a couple of generation skips because, of course, what you're doing is you're talking about grandparents and grandchildren. You, 200 years ago, the faith of my great-great-grandparents was passed down to me in the person of my grandmother who would bring me to her little apartment you know, this grandmother whose husband died and then her parents, who she was taking care of in her house, died all within the same year. And then her son got polio and then her daughter got polio and died from it. And she had no money and she had to go and live in the house of somebody taking care of somebody's decrepit uh, spouse. And that's how she lived her life. And you go, her faith that endured that became a vehicle, a, 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 a cable through which the faith of people who lived 200 years ago came to me. And that's not just that. Their faith came from where? Even before that, 200 years more. Now, I, I say this because I think when we go through trials and tribulations in our life, we always think that it's just about us. We don't stop to realize that, is it possible that maybe when our kids look backwards and they see the sacrifice that their parents or their grandparents made, that possibly they see this as being of great value to them? And that maybe if they see it as of great value, they're going to pass that on to their grandchildren someday? We are living in one of the eras where the passing of the faith onto the next generation has probably become one of the worst. Now, there, there were times actually in Germany, if we use Germany as an example, but probably Norway as well, um, the, the, that, that the faith disappeared. Um, Joel Zagel gave me a book on his great-grandfather, I think is what it was, who was, uh, became a pastor and came over here to the United States. But when he was being raised, the, the, literally Germany had just become so utterly rationalistic that they now denied almost everything that the scriptures had to say. Uh, Christianity was nothing but moralism. Pastors would preach on farming methods. They would not even preach on the text of Christ and forgiveness of sins. Those pastors were just rare, rare, rare all over Germany. And that happened. But it's happening again. And our next generation is going to be, right now, the telltale of whether or not this faith survives. 
And right now, things are looking very, very tough for not only just denominations, but if things are looking really, really tough for what's going to happen in this as our world becomes more secular. So you're going to have a tough time, but they're going to look at your sacrifice and they're going to realize that what you went through and what you gave up and what you were willing to do in order to keep the faith, that's not just going to serve you. It's going to serve them. 200 years from now. Think about that. That's if the world lasts that long. But Carol wants it to end faster because she knows her retirement account isn't big enough. Um, <laughs> no, she's going to do just fine. All right, and then look at that last phrase. Even angels long to look into these things. That is an interesting phrase. Angels are trying to be able to understand it. You say, what happened? I mean, this is what Luther is... Um, Luther sometimes uh, talks about the fall, and I guess we all speculate on what could have caused Satan to have fallen. He was a good angel who was created as a good angel, and he fell. What could have caused this fall? Well, ultimately, we don't know. The cause of evil is not something that we can really... God has not given us the permission to be able to explore that, or where that initial um, domino fell that caused this. But that there was definitely in Satan a, a, a kind of envy that God would take this lowly material creation of his called Adam and Eve and that he would bestow upon them the crown of knowing and not only knowing but having a communion with him. Remember last week I said it's kind of like the, the, the ugly kid who never gets asked to dance and then the prom king goes over and falls in love you know, and everybody is going, what? happened here? What's going on? Well, God looks down. Here's the, here are these magnificent creatures called angels. Angels with might and power and glory and who in heaven are going to shine like the stars. Angels who are above us. And God reaches down, takes some dirt, makes it together, blows into it the breath of life. And now Adam and Eve actually have been given the gift of being able to know who God is and to share in his eternal nature. And the angels, maybe, get jealous. But what does God do? Not even angels can know God the way that you know him. Not even angels. Theirs is a different kind of knowledge. Ours is the intimacy of love, the intimacy of being able to comprehend Paul says, in heaven, we will know all things even as we are fully known. To know and comprehend the mysteries of the universe. Wow, we've been given that. We get to dwell in the presence of God and his nature actually comes to connect to us. And not just then. Now. Look at what Martin Chemnitz said. You all got that piece? Y'all, y'all... You all got that piece of paper there? The, um, 
We're we're looking here at the relevant issues of the day, humanly invented ideas about the Lord's Supper, that and that, I think it's the third page. You open it up. Okay. He, let's take the... Well, I'm going to briefly start with the first paragraph, and then we're going to jump down to the third one. We grant with Irenaeus that after the blessing in the Eucharist, the bread is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist of the body of Christ, which now consists of two things, the earthly, that is, bread and wine, and the heavenly, that is, the body and blood of Christ. This is certainly a great, miraculous, and truly divine change since before it was simply an ordin and only ordinary bread and common wine. What now, after the blessing, is truly and substantially present, offered, and received is truly the body and the blood of Christ. Therefore, we grant that a certain change has taken place so that it can be truly said of the bread that it is the body of Christ. But we deny that it follows from this that we must therefore assert the kind of transubstantiation which the papists teach. Now, transubstantiation means that the substance, trans, it, it changes, substantiation, that the substance changes so that it's no longer bread and it's no longer wine when it's consecrated, is now body and blood alone. And we say, well, what does that matter? Well, what matters is, is that not only is it denial of the word, but it is also that this becomes, they see the, the sacrament as the, Roman, as the Old Testament priests would have, have they, that this is now a sacrifice of the body and blood of Christ, as though we were re-sacrificing Christ upon the cross. And they make it meritorious. That is to say that the sacrament, that the sacrament is a sacrifice where men are offering to God, men are offering to God a gift. A sacrament is where God is offering to man a gift. And if this is the priest by his magical powers transforming the bread and the wine into the body and the blood of Christ, it is by what he is doing that you get what it is that God would give. So, in other words, this actually becomes he becomes the savior of the people. And when they would do you know, this excommunication of nations and that kind of stuff, they would excommunicate entire nations sometimes if they weren't obedient. That would mean that if that priest didn't consecrate that bread and wine, that it would not actually get forgiveness of sins. We say when Christ died upon that cross, all sins of all mankind were forgiven, which is now given to us in the Lord's Supper. It isn't Pastor Feeney who is going, doing the abracadabra alakazoo uh, this is body and this is blood because I, by my magical powers, have transformed it into that. This is now that Christ, by God's word and his word, he now brings to me the benefits of Christ. Now he says, he says, it's interesting, he quotes Cyprian, who is an early, or Irenaeus, who is an early church father, to show this is the teaching of the, of the Christian church before Rome. So anyway, that's, that's a... Uh, thing about Rome there. But let's look down to the third paragraph. 
Thus, first of all, in his own person, he sanctified, restored, and blessed human nature. And now, in order that he, we might be made certain that these blessings apply also to us in our wretched nature and have truly been communicated to us, Christ in his supper again offers us that very nature which he assumed from us and in himself first restored so that we can so that we receive it with our poor flesh we are no longer in doubt concerning the salvation also of our nature through Christ don't you like those long sentences um He's saying what we're driving at here is that Christ takes our human nature, he perfects our human nature, and then he gives his perfected nature to us, our poor nature, so that our faith can actually rest in something that is concrete and tangible. So when you take of that, uh, of that bread and drink of that wine, you know that you have received Christ. Why do we do that? Because we need an external thing to cling on to as a promise. You know, somebody comes to me and they say, did you know you just won the lottery? I never buy any tickets, by the way. I just want to let you know that. But, I, but we did invest the entire building fund in the last lottery. <laughs> Because it's such a good idea, people apparently think it is, um, but we didn't win. Um, no, um, uh, the, uh, the, this is, what was I even saying? I kind of lost, lost track of it there for a second. Um, he, we need something tangible. If you say uh, you won the lottery and they'd say, well, where's the ticket? You say, well, I have to have something. No, I just think I won the lottery. And everybody would say, well, you're crazy. Where's the ticket? You got the right numbers. You got the right ticket. We'll know where it's sold. We'll probably even have a camera that says that you, that you won it. You say, well, how do I know that I am actually united to Christ? Where's the ticket? Where, well, I just think I am. Well, how about if God just wants to anchor our faith and he says, here's the ticket. It's the body and the blood of Christ here under bread and wine us Christians to eat and to drink. How do I know I'm a child of God? Well, because of my perfect life. Right, Lucy? <laughs> Lucy just knows, yes, yes. She's been saying that to her dad. Yes, yes. Any, yeah, in my perfect life, no. Can I look at how, how I've eliminated sin in my life? No, is that my assurance? My assurance in being a child of God is that actually Christ has in my baptism bestowed on me the rights of sonship. That's what the Bible says. And so therefore, it's tangibly tied. Now, what does he say? This is even more. We actually get drawn into Christ so that in his nature, he actually begins to transform our nature. He says, for in this way, he, as it were, grafts our miserable and corrupt nature into the holy and life-giving mass of his human nature. Think of those plants. 
uh, grafting. I guess they did it back in those days. You grafted, that is, you took a branch and you grafted it into the vine. And the life that was in the vine began to flow in the branch, that this is what happens, actually, in the Lord's Supper. So that our depravity and misery are cured and renewed through the remedy of this most intimate union. And he says, I am calling attention just to the main points of this, these tremendously important matters, which can be understood better by pious meditation than explained by human language. There is no uh, easy way to explain the Lord's Supper. We were, Sylvia and I were, uh, I think I've told you this before, but um, somebody once said that, um, that you know that you're getting older when you precede everything with the phrase, I probably have said this before. <laughs> but uh, we were uh, on our honeymoon, and we were actually in Spain, and we had just been in, a, in this cathedral in Segovia. Our, yeah, I think, no, Seville. Seville. Sevilla. And, um, and we watched as they were distributing the, uh, the sacrament, and we came back to the hotel, and there was a Jewish couple there that they were from Israel, and they said, what were the people going, doing when they went up and got this stuff put in their mouth? Well, being a seminarian that I was, and so full of intimate knowledge, um, I said, well, let me explain for you. Like, for instance, in the Passover meal where they would take and eat the lamb and they would drink from the cup, and they said to me, what's the Passover? <laughs> I said, blink, blink, blink. You're from Israel and you don't know what the Passover is? They were so secular, they didn't even know what the Passover was. You think, boy, today, what do you say to people? What are those people doing when they go up and they take that bread and drink that cup? Well, we are actually eating the very body of Christ, and we are drinking his blood. You see how that resonates with people? I did a wedding yesterday, and um, I do have to say that it is pretty clear that Christians do have non-Christian friends. Um, you know, you look out at the people who are out uh, in the congregation, and you know that they're there probably out of respect for the couple. But why do they have to have those, those sour pussy looks on their faces when you are when you are singing a hymn or you're, you're speaking God's word or reading the scripture lessons. You know, just, I, you know, if, if I'm going to go to a Jewish synagogue, I'm going to be interested. Why, why wouldn't that interest you? You know, if you're going to go to a, a, a Muslim Islamic uh, service or whatever they call it, wouldn't it just be interesting? Wouldn't it just be fascinating? It's just like, these people, it, they're just dull boards. They're becoming so secular that they almost see it even as a threat to them. That if they open their minds even just a little bit, that, that it's going to be tough. Well, so we come along and we try to be able to give them this. And we try to be able to say, 
You know, do you think you can save yourself? Or maybe I have to wait until that guy is in, in a hospital room and, and that's the first conversation that I have. Maybe it's the fact that they're, you know, they're struggling through their problems and trials in life. Or, what, or maybe it's that someday it just kind of goes boing and it hits them. But I think almost always those kinds of things only happen when they have been raised in a family where they have actually heard the word of God as a kid. You know, it's kind of like there's, a, there's something that they are going back to, that the word is stuck somehow back in their souls, and they come back to it. If they have not heard anything, if they're like this Israeli couple, what's Easter? Well, what's Christmas? Santa Claus. Um, what, is, what is church? Why are we here? And if we say to them, not just that we believe that Christ took our place and died in our place so that we might be reconciled to the God who created this universe and so that we might live forever in his presence. And by the way, one of the ways that this happens is that we unite ourselves to his human-divine nature in the waters of baptism and we receive his body and his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and he sanctifies our fallen, poor, sinful human natures, they'll look at you and go, I don't know. I mean, does it, could it penetrate? It's, it's like a language. It's like a language that is almost impossible. If you're speaking this language, it's almost impossible for them to understand it because they have never heard it before. But, let's read on. Well, how, how do we go about getting this stuff? Therefore, he says, prepare, this is verse 13, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hopes fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. What, what does it, what is meant by to be holy? What, what does it mean to be holy? Amanda Probst knows. Don't you just like it when some, you call on somebody in a class like this and they get to that look like, what? How is my name? You know my name. <laughs> Anybody, what does it mean to be holy? Without sin? That very often we say to be sinless. Are we going to be able to be without sin? No, but as Christians, do we strive for that? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of ways in which this word is used. Um, to be holy is also to be set apart for a sacred purpose. That is to say, you know, like for instance, if you have, um, if you have company. Remember the, remember the old days when you had company and you brought out the china? <laughs> now you've given it away and tried to be able to pawn it off on your kids so that they can store it in their house because you don't ever use your china anymore, right? And those little tiny dainty little cups, you know, that you kept paying all that money for for all those years, 
that you never drink from because they're set aside in that cabinet and you would never take them out because they might break. <laughs> to, when something is set aside for a sacred and a holy purpose, it means that you only use it for things that are very, very, very special. Maybe that baptismal gown, you know, that you were baptized in, that your mom saved so that when you had kids, that your kids would actually, you saved it. You put it in a special place. You didn't let any moisture destroy it. You tried to be able to keep it from getting stained. And if it gets stained, you might even send it out to somebody, a seamstress, to fix it if it had suffered any damage, right? That's set apart. Christian's holy life means that we take our lives and we set them apart for a holy purpose. And the holy purpose has to do with the praise of God. The holy purpose has to do that we bring glory to God by our life. And sometimes we bring glory to God by our death. And you don't think about this. Uh, we haven't passed out any sheets that say, when we do your funeral service, what hymns are we going to sing? And so often people think of the first fundamentalist hymn that they can think of. You know that, you know, you know, there, amazing grace. How many times did you sing that in church? Well, two times, I think, but I've heard it every time I've gone to a funeral. But, now, I mean, how about, did you see those hymns that we sang today? By Brorson? Oh, I walk in danger all the way. The thought shall never leave me. That Satan who has marked his prey is plotting to deceive me. The foe with hidden snares is, will seize me unawares. If e'er I fail to watch and pray, I walk in danger all the way. Wow, look at those words. That will scare those people that are secular people right out of the pew, you know. <laughs> now, that, that last hymn that we sang, Albrecht von Preussen, did that hymn. And you know, that's the only hymn that has ever been written that we know of by a duke, by a person of high standing, this Prussian duke. You know, Prussia was this area originally that was up along the Baltic there, which in fact probably a good portion of it today is probably in Poland. But uh, Kaliningrad, that place where the Russians are storing all their missiles, used to be uh, called um, Königsberg, Königsberg, the king's fortress. And that's where the pressure, and this Albrecht von Preussen became a Lutheran. He, he, bought, he took this faith, and he wrote hymns, of which this is only one of them. And you, you hear those words, and they're, they're deep and they're pious. This is bringing glory to God, and this is setting apart our hymnody. When our songs, when what we do in church is no different from what it is that they're doing out there in the world, when it looks like a rock concert, do you think that that's holy? And I'm not saying that, that it isn't. You know, when we get into this area right here, this here, it's, it's probably very true that instruments that we use in worship can fall into this category. You know, um, organs are great, but they didn't have organs in Jesus' day. They sang probably a cappella. And when you walk into those stone churches and you sing a cappella, you realize, man, this is wonderful because it just resonates inside of those churches, those stone churches.
But it's, that's, we call it adiaphora. It's something that you don't necessarily have to prescribe. But what we do, the Old Testament, everything that those priests did had to be set aside and they had to be pure. The linens that the priests wore, they had a thousand threads to the inch. They don't even know how it is that they made them. They knew that they imported probably many of these things from India. And those vestments of the priests were set aside and they were holy because they were used for God's holy purposes. Now, along comes the, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. And you know what they say? Take your body and make it holy. Set it aside for a holy purpose. And you think, you know, you, unfortunately, I, well, one of the good things about having sealed cars, is, unlike, unlike carriages of old, is that what I say to people who are bad drivers on the road is, is not a very sacred and holy thing. Um, but, you know, you think about this. It, it, is, does the world know that you're a Christian? Do the people in the, around you know that you're a Christian? And if you are using vocabulary that is not very nice vocabulary, and not just even swear words or cursing, but words that can derate, berate people or words that can condemn people or words that, that speak of your prejudices and your and the things that you hate and so on. That's not, that's not making your body sacred and holy. But the other thing too, and we have to remember this, this is, we're coming, we've got a few minutes, but uh, we're coming to the end here, that, that when, it, when things are set apart and made holy, we also can take the things that are what the Bible calls common, and we can enjoy them. Now, by that I mean, Jen Sukula had a great concert here. You guys all, a lot of you missed it. She was, she was doing her doctoral thesis in jazz, you know, and she was down at the jazz kitchen, and that, that woman knows how to play jazz, let me tell you. Um, sorry to pick on you, Jen. Um, but, but we just enjoyed it. And we didn't have to worry about Jen trying to turn it all into Christian jazz. But it was good jazz, and we can enjoy that. We can enjoy our beer. We can enjoy our wine. We can enjoy our food, and we can give thanks to God. But we don't have to do it all in church, right? In church, this is where we set everything apart, and we make it into God's holy things. Now, the, the last thing about holiness is this. You know, you've heard the phrase, to the pure, all things are pure. That a Christian sanctifies everything in their life with the word of God. So, in a sense, whatever is common, we can make into something which is holy before God by the way that we give thanks for it based upon our appreciation for what God has done for us. Like, for instance, when you sit down to your meal and we say, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, right? When we pray or we say, 
Uh, we give thanks for this food which you have given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are making that food holy. When you get up in the morning and you look at that handsome husband of yours and you drink a cup of coffee and you give thanks to God for the gift that he gave you for how many years of marriage? How many? Did you agree on that? She said 65. <laughs> She's older than you are. <laughs> she was married one year before she met you. Uh. <laughs> and you give thanks to God for that. You sanctify it. And you make it holy. Now, the hardest thing of all is when we have trials and tribulations. And we sing that hymn, The will of God is always best and shall be done forever. All they who trust in him are blessed. He will forsake them never. He helps indeed in times of need. He chastens with forbearing. All who depend on God, their friends, shall not be left despairing. When you take that chastisement of God and you say to yourself, this is not only the will of God, but I give thanks to God for this trial that he has laid upon me. You sanctify it. And that's how it is that Christians live holy lives. You're never going to be perfect. You're never going to be able to get rid of your sin. But you're going to be able to call whatever happens to you, even if it's unjust, to be able to say the will of God is always best. And when you take it and you put it into God's hands with prayers and petitions and so on and so forth, what you are doing, you are sanctifying those things and you are even making them holy. So we want to live holy lives, personally, and also by the way that we make things holy. I think that's probably good enough, huh? Um, how did, the, you know, I don't know that we should be giving out any coffee to anybody who comes in late to this class, do you think? But we got we got just enough time now uh, to be able to make one more appeal, and uh, Chuck Long is going to ask you to sanctify donuts. Good news is we don't have to make another appeal. Uh, we filled in the slate here till the uh, end of the year. Oh. So thanks very much for those that volunteered. It's just a source of encouragement uh, that that you're stepping up to it. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, that's wonderful. Good news. Okay. Um, we are fast underway. We have a little baby to be baptized, and it's a good thing. So we're very happy to do that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, Heavenly Father, help us to be able to take your word and to implant it into our hearts. We pray that we may not only give thanks to you, but also that its power, connected even to these sacraments, may give to us a sanctified life. Help us to do those things which are your will. Help us to strive for those things that maybe even lie beyond our abilities. But to always remember that through your word, through your sacrament, that you always give to us your promised Holy Spirit that we can always do things that are greater than what we by ourselves can will and do. Forgive us, we pray, for all of our failings when we have failed to sanctify your holy name and grant unto us that peace which the world cannot have, 
that our hearts may not only be set to obey your commandments, but that we, being fully convinced that your word of grace is ours and belongs to us, that we may with hope and confidence run the race that you have prepared for us, looking to Jesus, who is the author and the pioneer of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In your holy name we pray this. Amen. <laughs>